Well, if you would, please open your Bibles to James chapter 1. Again, this is the letter of James chapter 1. Trials can produce a tremendous benefit in the life of a Christian, uh, but they only produce that benefit when the Christian remains steadfast. That's what we've been exploring over the past several weeks in James, the importance of endurance in trials. It says the Christian endures that their faith is strengthened. It's as their eyes are fixed completely on Christ that they receive the wisdom that helps them make sense of the trial that they're enduring. Steadfastness, endurance, faithfulness, these are the keys to growing in Christ and gaining the wisdom that comes through suffering. But how do we do that? How can the Christian remain steadfast in the face of trials? James is going to help us answer this question this morning. The passage is James 1, 9-12. Let's read this passage in its context, again starting in verse 2 and continuing through verse 18. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of His creatures. No pain, no gain. It's a mantra that we'll often quote to ourselves to remind us of the, the benefit that comes from hard work. In just a few weeks, the calendar will roll over, a new year will begin, and millions of people will make an attempt at achieving some kind of New Year's resolution, up to 40% of Americans, according to Forbes magazine. And of that 40%, a good portion will head to the gym, they'll trim their diet, they'll make some kind of effort to improve their health, all while quoting this mantra to themselves, no pain, no gain. We all seem to recognize this truth that in order to have something of value, it often comes with a cost. There's there's some measure of sacrifice, some measure of suffering that's going to accompany it. There's no such thing as a free lunch, we'll say. If you want to eat, then you'd better expect to put in the work. The payoff only comes after the investment. If you want to get the A, then you'd better study. It's not going to just happen. 
It's going to come as you turn off the television and open your books and work for it. If you want to become rich, it's not going to happen by spending your money just as soon as you get your hands on it. No, it's going to happen by saving and investing, meaning you're often going to have to sacrifice short-term benefit for long-term gains. It's the same way with any skill that you'd like to develop. Do you think it'd be fun to learn how to play the guitar? Then get ready for long hours of practice. Get ready for the tips of your fingers to hurt because it's going to take many hours of practice for them to develop the calluses that make guitar playing physically easy. You want to learn how to skate? Then get ready to fall. It's really fun to go blazing across the ice at full speed, but it doesn't happen without a lot of bruises on your knees and blisters on your ankles. You know, going back to the New Year's resolutions, do you want to be physically fit? Then no pain, no gain. Right? You're not going to get there by being comfortable. It's going to take sacrifice. It's going to take suffering. This is how it is, right? Well, this is kind of how it works with the Christian life as well. No pain, no gain. No pain, no gain. Even with salvation, even with salvation, there's a price, right? But wait a minute, you say, what about Romans 6.23? The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Doesn't that prove that salvation is unearned? It comes without pain or sacrifice. And that's true so far as it relates to you and me. We do not feel the pain that won our salvation. But that doesn't mean our salvation comes without a cost because Jesus suffered tremendous pain as He offered Himself up as a sacrifice for our sins. So the maxim is true even in regards to salvation. No pain, no gain. This is how the world operates, this side of the fall. When, when Adam ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, sin entered into the world and death through sin. And this is why it is necessary for Jesus to die for our justification because the penalty of sin is death. But the suffering brought into the world by sin doesn't end there with the wrath of God satisfied at the cross. And the reason is because with sin came a curse on this creation. With Adam's sin came the thorns and the thistles that resist our efforts to shape the earth according to God's will. With Eve's sin came the pains in childbearing that inhibit our efforts to fulfill God's command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So pain is is now inevitable in our pursuit of righteousness because since sin has entered into the world, there is resistance to our efforts. And so it is unavoidable that as the Christian pursues their relationship with God, as they try to grow in their experience of the fellowship with God that Christ won for them at the cross, there's going to be pain. This can be pain brought about by the natural order, as they experience some kind of issue with their physical health, for instance, or as they suffer through some kind of natural disaster like famine or drought or fire. Or it can be pain brought through the plots of evil men. Perhaps as they're persecuted for their faith, or or perhaps as they're treated unjustly for no other reason than the mere fact that man is unjust by nature and so inclined to do evil. Whatever the case may be, the fact of the matter is that as they pursue their relationship with Christ, there is bound to be resistance to those efforts this side of the fall. There is bound to be suffering. In fact, as we've seen over the past several weeks, James even tells us that suffering isn't just incidental to Christian growth. It's instrumental. 
It's instrumental. He says in verses 2 through 4, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In effect, he says that it's through trials that our faith is tested, or perhaps better stated, refined. It's, it's purified through the fires of suffering. So a faith that begins weak is strengthened through suffering. And it's through this refined faith that we gain what is necessary to be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The idea is that trials aren't just unavoidable for the Christian, they're actually necessary for their growth. So the mantra is as true for us today as it is for the individual hitting the gym on January 1st. No pain, no gain. If you want to grow in the experience of your salvation... If you want to, in the words of Paul, have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God, then be prepared to suffer. Because God purifies the faith of His children in the fires of affliction. And this is where things become difficult. It's said that only 8% of people will achieve their New Year's resolutions, and 80% will actually fail by the second week of February. And do you know why that is? Why people so often fail when they set these goals and they don't, they don't achieve them? It's because it doesn't take any effort whatsoever to resolve to do something. It's very easy when you're sitting on your couch in December to say, you know, I'd like to drop 20 pounds next year. It's easy to want a good thing. It's much harder to actually go through the pain that brings that blessing into your life. This is what happens every year. Millions of people resolve to improve their health, but then once the pain sets in, once their lungs are burning on the treadmill, or once their stomach is growling at 9 o'clock at night, and that piece of cake is sitting there on the counter, and it's looking good, just waiting to be eaten, they quit. They're They're not prepared to endure the kind of hardship that they need to endure in order to achieve their goal. And it's really no different with the Christian life. I would assume that almost all of us would say, I want to know Christ better. I want a more intimate relationship with my Savior. I mean, what Christian wouldn't want that, right? That's not hard to say. That's very easy to say that. But once the pain that actually brings that blessing enters into our life, suddenly we're not so sure. I would venture to say that just like the 80% that quit their New Year's resolutions in the second week of February, many, perhaps even most of us, quit very early in that process. We say, this is tough. And we eject before we ever get to experience the blessing that God means to give us through suffering. And there are probably a couple of different reasons for this. I mean, the main reason probably comes down to the fact that many Christians just don't realize that affliction is normal. And it's, it's a necessary experience for the Christian life. It isn't natural to embrace suffering, right? And it's not as if this is going to be a very popular message, message either. And so it's not uncommon to encounter churches that just ignore that whole part of the gospel where Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. In fact, it's probably more likely to encounter churches that ignore that part of the message. And so for many Christians, they just don't understand that suffering is a normal part of the Christian life. 
They've been conditioned to believe that it's all comfort and ease. And so when trials come, they do what every other person does when confronted with pain. They'll do what we're all inclined to do when confronted with pain. They'll try to find an escape. Again, a lot of Christians do this because they simply don't realize that trials are a necessary part of their growth. So they eject from the trial because they just don't know any better. It's never been explained to them. But even even for those who do understand this, even for those who do get this, Many, if not most, will not make it very far in the trial before they eject. Either by changing their circumstances for something easier or perhaps by sinning. And the reason they fail to persevere is not because they don't understand the value of perseverance, but because they don't know how to persevere. They know they should remain steadfast, but they don't know how. That's what James is going to explain for us this morning. He's going to show us how to endure the suffering long enough to experience the benefit that trials bring. Again, James has already told us why we need to persevere in trials in verses 2 through 4. He's told us there's tremendous benefit that comes through trials, that God sanctifies us in the trial. That's That's a good thing I've explained, because it's as we're sanctified that we learn to find our satisfaction in Christ, and this is an abundant and abiding satisfaction. That's why we can consider it joy to encounter trials, because they teach us to depend more and more on Jesus, and as our faith is refined through that testing process, we find greater and greater joy in Him. In verses 5 to 8, James then told us how to gain the wisdom that we need to, uh, that we need to know in, in order to know how we can respond or how we should respond in the face of trials. Again, the point in trials is to respond with faithfulness, to, to obey when the pressure is turned up. But what does that look like? What does that mean? James says, ask God and he'll tell you. He's eager to tell you. But, James says, understand that you have to ask in faith without wavering. This wisdom is only going to come as we try to direct all of our attention on Christ. As we live in His grace, by His power, and for His glory. It's all focused on Him. That's when the wisdom comes. And So now the question is, how do we do all that? How do we keep our attention fixed on Christ when we're suffering? How do we remain, how do we remain steadfast When the pain starts to set in, in short, where does the strength to persevere come from? And there are probably a a number of different answers that you could give to that question theologically. But in today's passage, James discloses just one answer. We find it in verses 9 to 12. Let's read it one more time. James says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So how do we persevere in trials? How do we remain steadfast in suffering? In a word, the answer is hope. Hope. Hope gives us the strength we need to persevere. We see this come out in verse 12. And verse 12 says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. And if you'll look here, you'll notice there are several words which occur in verse 12, which we also saw back in verses 2 to 4. 
For example, James speaks of the man who remains steadfast under trial. The word for steadfast here, upameno, it comes from the same root that occurs in verses 3 to 4 when James speaks of steadfastness. The only difference is that here it's a verb, whereas back in verses 3 and 4 it was a noun, upomone. This word for trial here in verse 12, perosmos, it's likewise the same word that we find for trials back in verses 2 to 4. And it's being used in the same sense that it's used back in verse 2 here. It refers to this same kind of external pressure on the Christian. When James speaks of the man who stands the test in verse 12, the word for test is dokimos. It's the adjective form of the same word which is translated as testing in verse 3, dokimion. Point being, it would seem... That verse 12 is a summary statement of what James has been explaining about trials starting all the way back in verse 2. He's been saying it is good to persevere in trials. And now as he concludes this this first section about the importance of perseverance, he adds this encouragement to persevere by saying, blessed is the man who does this. Blessed is the man who follows the instructions I just gave you. And why is this man blessed? What's the encouragement that James has to offer to motivate his readers to stay steadfast in trials? It's the hope of eternal life. James says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for... Meaning, here comes the reason why he's blessed. For when he has stood the test. So, once the process described in verses 3 to 4 is completed, he says, For when he has stood the test... He will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love Him. In Greek culture, winners of athletic competitions would usually receive a crown of laurels or of some other type of plant as a reward. Probably the, the most famous example of this is the crown of olive branches that were awarded to winners at the original Olympic Games. Uh, victors in battles were also sometimes awarded these crowns as a symbol of their victory. Uh, Paul actually uses this imagery when he speaks of his perseverance in the face of suffering and the reward that he's about to receive as he nears death. In 2 Timothy 4, 7-8, he says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. That seems to be the imagery that James is conjuring up here as well. He's saying that the one who perseveres through trial, the one who endures and proves themselves true through their faithfulness, they're going to be awarded eternal life. And I know that probably starts to sound like James is arguing for some kind of works-based salvation when he uses this sort of terminology, but that's not what he's saying. And as we get to chapter 2, we'll see James believes in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and not by the works of the law. It's just that he also understands that the faith that saves is the faith that works. In other words, works, obedience, in this case perseverance, these things do not merit salvation, but they do proceed out of salvation. The one who is saved will do them. It's guaranteed. And the reason this is so, the reason why this kind of perseverance is guaranteed, is because, to borrow Paul's words from Romans 9, salvation depends, quote, not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. 
In other words, the Christian cannot ultimately fall away from the faith, not even in times of intense trial. They're actually unable to reject God and turn away. And the reason is because God has given them the Holy Spirit as a down payment, as a kind of guarantee for their salvation. And this Holy Spirit causes them to persevere. So there's nothing of merit in this when James speaks in this way, of of the crown of life that's going to be awarded to the one who perseveres. His point, rather, is very much like the one that Peter makes in 1 Peter 4, 12-14, when he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. He says, But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. He says, If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Peter says you should rejoice when you endure suffering. Because when you persevere in suffering, it's a sign that God's Spirit rests upon you. And that means you're His child, and you have a great and imperishable reward awaiting you in heaven. In other words, the perseverance isn't a sign of our merit, it's a sign of our adoption. And, it's, and that should give us tremendous hope when we persevere. Paul makes a very similar statement when he says in Romans 5, 3-5, he says, We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. You see the same sequence there that you see in James with a few additions. Suffering produces endurance, just like trials produce steadfastness in James. This endurance produces proven character, according to Paul. Just like steadfastness makes us perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, in James. And this proven character, Paul says, produces hope. It's the same idea that you see in 1 Peter, the same idea that you see here in James. It's an idea that Jesus himself repeated on a couple of different occasions when he said, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Or as Jesus says to those in the tribulation in Luke 21, verse 19, by your endurance you will gain your lives. That's not because endurance merits a person's salvation. It's because endurance is an evidence of true saving faith. And so, proven character, Paul says, produces hope. Here, though, though, James speaks of this hope not as a result of perseverance, but more of a cause. He's using it to, to motivate his readers to keep going. It's like what Peter does in 1 Peter 5, 8-10, when he tells his readers, he says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And then he says, And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That's James' point here as well. He's saying the one who endures is blessed because after he suffered just a little while, God is going to give him the crown of eternal life. Listen closely here. The key to overcoming incredible suffering is to have a superior hope. You go back to the people who resolved to get in shape and and then quit by early February. And again, do you know why they quit? Most of the time, most of the time is because their desire to get into shape doesn't outweigh their discomfort. 
This is how it tends to work. The anticipation of your reward has to outweigh the pain that it takes to get there or you will not endure. The ones who endure at the gym, they do so because they have a goal in mind that they want badly enough that they'll deal with the discomfort. That might be appearance, that might be health, whatever the case, there's something they want that pushes them to drive through that pain. The one who puts in the hours of work it takes to learn the guitar does so in anticipation of the outcome of what will happen once they endure. They put up with the calluses. They sacrifice their time all because of their desire to know how to play. In the same way, the one who saves their money and invests in the future, they do so because of the reward they anticipate they'll receive at the end. They realize that if they just wait, $50,000 can turn into $200,000. And the anticipation of that greater reward drives them to forego the short-term pleasures their money could buy them now. Hope can cause people to go to, to endure sometimes incredible amounts of suffering for sometimes incredible amounts of time. Uh, you look at Jacob, for instance, and he worked a total of a total by the end of it all, a total of fourteen years for the privilege to marry Rachel. Love will do that sometimes, right? It'll produce that kind of hope. And with that hope can come great endurance as the lover anticipates the day when they'll be reunited with their beloved. In the same way you find people endure all kinds of hardship in times of war or in times of financial depression, and very often people will later sit down with them and ask the survivors, what motivated you to keep going? And the answer they'll often give is hope. They kept walking through the valley of the shadow of death because no matter how dark it got, they could still see a ray of sunlight breaking through on the other side. And it works the same way spiritually as well. We, we persevere through hope. For instance, do you know why Jesus suffered on the cross? I mean, you want to talk about a trial, you want to talk about agony. That's the greatest moment of agony that anyone's ever experienced. What kept him there? What kept him on the cross enduring that pain? Again, there's probably many different answers that we could give to answer that question, but if we could summarize it in a word, the answer is hope. The author of Hebrews says that we should run with endurance the race that is set before us. He says that we should endure, quote, looking to Jesus, meaning following His example. And then he explains, saying, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Again, we could probably frame what the writer means here when he speaks of the joy that was set before him in several different ways. But however you want to define that joy, the point is that what pushed Jesus to endure his trials with faithfulness was the anticipation of its outcome. It was hope. You look at the Apostle Paul, probably the the greatest evangelist of all time after Jesus. And this was a man who suffered greatly for the advancement of the gospel. You run down the list he provides in 2 Corinthians 11, and it's overwhelming. He says he was scourged five times, beaten with rods three times. He was was stoned on another occasion, shipwrecked three times, often went without food and water, suffered countless sleepless nights as he suffered the, the, the cold and exposure of the elements. He was imprisoned often. He frequently hazarded threats from robbers and from wild animals, and even from his own countrymen, the Jews. 
And then on top of that all, he was often attacked by the very churches that he endured these sacrifices for in order to plant. So what kept him going? What allowed him to to persevere in the face of these trials? The answer again is hope. Listen to what he says. This is 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18. As he recalls the suffering he often endured for the sake of the gospel, he tells the Corinthians this. He says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul has such a clear anticipation of heaven that he considers that list of suffering that I just read to you, he calls it, quote, momentary light affliction. He says that affliction is, quote, preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. The joy of what he anticipates in heaven outweighs his present suffering and propels him to push through it. I think we even get a uh, get an even clearer picture of this motivation in the book of Philippians. The book of Philippians, you, re- you will recall, is where Paul says that he's learned how to be brought low and, and how to abound. It's where he says he's learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. It's where he says he's learned how to be content in any and every circumstance while under house arrest in Rome. This right here, that's the, that's the peaceful fruit of righteousness that we've talked so much about over the past several weeks. It's the, the part of the blessing of righteousness, unshakable joy. That's something that no amount of money can buy. And Paul had it. And guess where this contentedness, this joy, comes from? As he considers his circumstances, he says in chapter 1, verses 18 to 24, he says, yes, I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, uh, to live is Christ and to die is gain. For I, if, I am, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your account. Paul says he's he's honestly caught between the desire to be released from prison, since that would mean continued service to the Philippians. He's caught between that desire and the desire to die, since he says he realizes that death means dwelling in the presence of Christ. In chapter 3, he echoes this thought when he says, he says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him in the power of His resurrection, and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Again, it's the hope of the resurrection that drives Paul. And again, he knows this comes through endurance as he shares in the sufferings of Christ. But this isn't a a generalized hope that pushes him on. He suffers all the loss of all things and counts them as rubbish, quote, because of the surpassing worth 
Again, greater value, surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Again, it's a greater hope that drives his endurance. But it's a hope of knowing Jesus specifically. As Paul became acquainted with the sufferings of Christ, he had such a clear vision of what it would be like to dwell in his presence that there was apparently nothing that could dissuade him from enduring hardship for the sake of the gospel. Since he understood that the end result of this hardship would be unbroken fellowship with Christ. Again, hope is what drove him. And this is the the testimony of every notable saint that we find in history. Hebrews 11 brings this point out most clearly. The chapter begins by noting that faith, by definition, is, quote, the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. So it's built, faith is built on the idea of hope. The author of Hebrews then goes on to catalog how all the various saints of the Old Testament both obeyed and endured by this faith. For example, why did the patriarchs leave their homeland and become sojourners in a land they didn't know? The answer is faith. And it's faith in this sense of the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Verses 13 to 16, he says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been uh, thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. This is why they became sojourners, because of their hope. And not a hope in a merely earthly homeland, but a heavenly one. Why did Moses willingly abandon the riches and privileges of Pharaoh's household to suffer along with the Israelites under the bondage of slavery? The answer again is because of the hope that he found in that suffering. Verses 24 to 26 say, By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. The example goes on and on. Indeed, the the, the examples become so numerous that the writer of Hebrews says he doesn't have time to explain every example that could be provided. He says in verses 32 to 34, he says, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, uh, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, who were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. The idea is that that this faith, this assurance of things hoped for and conviction of things not seen, it was instrumental in the obedience of essentially every Old Testament saint. Every great act of perseverance, every mighty or powerful deed that you see in the Scripture, it was all driven by, number one, that saint's confidence in God, and number two, the hope produced by that confidence. In fact, the author of Hebrews even goes so far as to say in verse 6 that it's impossible to please God apart from this kind of faith. He says, and without faith, it is impossible to please Him. And listen to this, he says, For whoever would draw near to God, anyone who wants to draw near to God, so if you want to draw near to God, this applies to you. If whoever would draw near to God, he says, must believe that He exists 
and that he rewards those who seek him. So this is where perseverance comes from. It comes from hope. And really, it's not just perseverance. Really, any kind of righteousness, any expression of righteousness, any expression of obedience, it's going to come from this faith, which is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. That's what the author of Hebrews says. Take love, for instance. When we speak of persevering in trials, this is one of the things that we're talking about. We're talking about remaining steadfast in our love even when the pressure is on. Okay? Did you know that Paul closes 1 Corinthians 13 by saying, So now faith, hope, and love. Abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. He says that faith, hope, and love are all things that the Christians need to seek, but the greatest is love. And just so you know, I don't believe he means that just in the sense of value, as if love is better or superior to faith and hope. I'm pretty sure he means this in the sense of progression or advancement, as in love is the, is the greatest in the sense that faith produces hope and hope love. And I say that because when Peter provides the list of qualities that keep us from being ineffective and unfruitful, he starts with faith saying, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. And then he goes on to provide a chain of attributes that begin with faith, proceed through steadfastness, and then end in love. In other words, what is it that produces love? Scripturally, the answer comes down to two core ideas. The first answer is grace. Jesus says, the one who is forgiven much loves much. The idea is that gratitude produces love for the one who demonstrates Compassion. So grace increases our love for God, and by extension, it's going to increase our love for those made in His image, our neighbors. The second answer, though, is faith, and that which proceeds from faith, which is hope. Again, what enabled Paul to lay down his life for the gospel? On one hand, I think we can say it was an expression of his gratitude to Christ for what was given him in the gospel, so grace right, motivated his sacrifice. But on the other hand, it goes back to what I just read from Paul's letters a moment ago, and that's hope. Heaven looms so large in Paul's mind that he would gladly sacrifice this life for others, since from his perspective, this one didn't really all account for that much. He held his life cheaply. And that's not to say that Paul didn't value this life. And so when he sacrificed for others, it was as if he was giving them his hand-me-downs or something like that. I just mean that he didn't place his hope in this life. And so he didn't feel like he had to hold on to it. It wasn't something that he felt like he needed to protect. And so it wasn't something that was going to prevent him from loving other people. I think a quote from, uh, there's a HBO miniseries, Band of Brothers. I think a quote from that uh, series kind of captures this idea well. If you're not familiar with the miniseries, it's based on the book of the same name in which um, author uh, Stephen Ambrose uh, traces the path of the 101st Airborne's Easy Company. Um, from, their training day, from their training in the United States to their uh, uh, airdrop on D-Day all the way to Hitler's eagle's nest in uh, Germany uh, during World War II. It's, it's got some rough language in it. I'll give you a heads up if you go watch it. It's got rough language in it. Soldiers talk and act like soldiers. Uh, but other than that, the series on the whole, it tries to exalt a lot of things that we as Christians would consider virtues. It's not written by Christians for a Christian perspective. It's just re- relating what these soldiers went through during World War II. Uh, anyways, there's this one episode where this one particular soldier, Private Blythe, uh, he struggles to work up the courage uh, to engage in combat. 
And at one point in this episode, he's having a conversation with a lieutenant by the name of Spears, who's renowned for his ferocity in battle. And as Blythe recalls how he hid in a ditch on D-Day, Spears says to him, he says, we're all scared. He says, you hid in that ditch because you think there's still hope. But Blythe, the only hope you have is to accept the fact that you're already dead. And the sooner you accept that, the sooner you'll be able to function as a soldier is supposed to function, without mercy, without compassion, without remorse. All war depends on it. Essentially, Spears tells him that the way to sacrifice and live recklessly as a soldier is to to stop trying to hold on to your life. Now, for him, right, the goal is to be merciless. That's the exact opposite of the goal that we have as Christians. But other than that, his assessment is pretty accurate. The way to sacrifice is by giving up hope for this life, not setting your joy here. That's how Paul did it. The reason why he was able to sacrifice for others was because he no longer placed his hope in this life. There was nothing that he felt he needed to protect. And you could say the same of Jesus. It was his anticipation of what would happen after the cross that allowed him to surrender what came before it. Well, it's the same with trials. It's when you stop holding on to this life and place your hope in the next that the pressures that come with trials no longer tempt you to sin and you're able to remain steadfast and faithful. It's only when you have a life that you think you need to save that trials are going to threaten you. When all your hope has been placed on, on your reward in heaven, then nothing can tempt you to disobey God. Since in the words of Peter, that inheritance is, quote, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Right? No one can threaten that prize. As Paul notes in Romans 8, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, not tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. So if your, if your hope is fixed there, then nothing is going to be able to shake your resolve. Nothing can ultimately tempt you to be unfaithful. Your hope is secure. And so when trials come, you'll remain secure, steadfast, unshakable. Just like James is going to say in verse 17, he's, he's going to say that God is unchanging in His character. He's consistent in His gifts. He says that in God, there is no variation or shadow due to change, meaning His righteous character is the same always. So also you will be when your hope is fixed on Him. He is unchanging, and that means your hope is unchanging. And if your hope is unchanging, then trials cannot tempt you. You will remain Steadfast. And this means that if you want to remain steadfast in trials, if you want even to fix your eyes solely on Christ so that you can receive the wisdom that God means to give you in trials, then then the place to start is by changing where you set your hope. Over the past several weeks, I've said that wisdom, true wisdom, biblically, is going to come as we see things from God's perspective. Again, He's the one who defines truth, and so if we want to understand the world around us, we have to learn to see it the way that He sees it. Well, that's going to start not by fixing your eyes here on earth, not on, by fixing your eyes on this life, which is temporary. It's going to come by lifting your eyes up to heaven and seeing the trials you're enduring from the perspective of eternity. You know, I think it's interesting. James is going to refer to righteousness as the wisdom that comes from above in chapter 3. 
That's how he refers to righteousness. It's the wisdom that comes from above. That's really a a good way to look at this. The wisdom that leads us to God isn't going to start from the earth and then work its way up. That understanding begins rather by fixing your eyes on heaven and letting that perspective frame the way you see things down here. So if you're going to become wise, then you have to start by fixing your eyes on the glorious future that's awaiting you in heaven. That's going to cast everything about your trials in a different light. It's like I've said before, this letter is really a tale of two kingdoms. There's the, there's the kingdom that's from above, where Christ reigns, a kingdom where the people live according to God's values, a kingdom which will come down from heaven at the return of Christ and be established forever. And then there's the kingdom that's from below, which James says is unspiritual and demonic. It's a kingdom in which wisdom is framed by our nearsighted desires, by our lusts. And it will come to an abrupt and dramatic end at the return of Christ. What you as a Christian need to reconcile is which kingdom you belong to. And then you need to to live in light of those realities. You need to stop trying to keep an eye on Christ while setting your hope on this life, on the here and now. You need rather to be pure in your thinking, in the true sense of that word, meaning your thinking needs to be undivided or whole. It needs to contain integrity in the sense that it is unmixed with any foreign alloys or metals. And this kind of thinking, my friends, comes through the refining fires of trials as we learn in these trials to put away our hope for this life and set our hope entirely on the joy that will belong to us at the return of Christ. Now, in a couple of weeks, I want to return to this passage and explore what, has, what James has to say in verses 9 through 11. Because in 9 through 11, he identifies two threats to this sort of hope. And there's, there's way more to say about these threats than what we have time for here today. In the meantime, I would encourage you to take away two thoughts from what we're encountering here in verse 12. Number one, I would encourage you, learn to think often of heaven. Learn to think often of heaven. I say learn because most of us probably aren't inclined to think this way. I want to dig into why this is so in greater detail uh, again in, in a couple weeks here, but suffice to say for the moment, Many Christians lack the sort of hope for heaven that we see in the writings of Paul. And for very many, this is due in part to the fact that we've been conditioned to think that the hope of the gospel lies primarily in this life, and this simply isn't so. Is there joy and contentment to be found in Christ now? Yes, of course there is. Yes, there's joy and contentment to be found in Christ now. It's it's why Paul could be content in trials, because of the hope of the gospel. Again, there's great wisdom and righteousness, and so there's great benefit to be had in the gospel even now. But that being said, the good news that the gospel proclaims isn't primarily about this life, but the next one. Again, don't get me wrong, we can have hope in this life, and that hope can help us endure trials with contentedness and joy, but all the same, All the same, there is a kind of sense in which you shouldn't be happy here. I mean, Paul says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And he says that because as content as he is here, he's looking forward to the next life more. He's eager for that day to come because he understands it's better. 
You really shouldn't be satisfied here, guys. Not, not when there's so much sin in the world. Not while your Savior is reviled by the world. Not while He's seated at the right hand of God and not on the throne of His fathers, the throne of His inheritance, the throne of David. Like, things really aren't okay right now. That doesn't have to drive us to despair. We can have hope, but you should expect more. Again, the problem is that most of us aren't conditioned to think this way, and that's due in part because we've been repeatedly told, if not explicitly, at least implicitly, by the kinds of things that many leaders tend to focus on, that the gospel is primarily about this life, and it's not. And that's unfortunate that we've been conditioned to think this way. Because the way you're going to learn to embrace and grow in trials, and to, and to, to experience the blessing that the gospel has to offer you now, it's going, to, it's going to happen by setting your hope on the joy that comes in the next life, not this present one. Many Christians falter in the face of trials because they think they're supposed to be comfortable now. And so when trials come, they don't know what to do. Listen, Jesus never promised comfort now. Rest comes either when we die or when Jesus returns. Until then, we've really only been promised hardship. And it's when you've understood this truth and then set your hope on the joy to be experienced in the next life that you'll be able to endure that hardship now with joy and without wavering. So learn to break free of this earthly understanding of the gospel. Learn rather to think often of the joy that you'll experience at the end of this life. Try to reprogram your thinking so that your hope is fixed there, not here. And then as you do this, number two, Don't just learn to think often of heaven, but number two, think often of what heaven represents. Think of what heaven represents. I say this because even when we do think of heaven, I think we're probably inclined to have an earthly understanding of it. We tend to take the idols that we have here and then just move them on up and think that heaven means that we'll just have to wait to experience the joy that they have to give us until then. And that's not how this works. I want you to go back for a second about how Paul understood heaven. I made a point to draw that out because I want you to understand that it wasn't just a general hope that he had. It was an anticipation of fellowship with Christ specifically that motivated his endurance. You have to understand that this is really what heaven is about or it will not give you any hope. You go back to Eden and the the final result of the curse, it's man's expulsion from the presence of God in the garden. You start tracing the hope of the gospel in Genesis and it starts to come out in places like Noah's blessing to Shem when he says, May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. I don't have the time to dig into the grammar of that verse right now, but just so you know, the him in let him dwell in the tents of Shem, that's not a reference to Japheth. That's a reference to God. Noah is saying, May God dwell in the tents of Shem. And by the way, by the time Moses writes the book of Genesis... That's exactly what Israel is experiencing. God is dwelling in the tabernacle, in their midst. God abandons Israel at the time of the exile, and the hope of the new covenant that follows is is this hope that with this new and better covenant, God will return, and He'll return to abide and depart again no more. You understand that's the hope of the gospel. 
It's fixed on the return of Christ. You go to Revelation, for instance, and what's the loud voice declaring as the new Jerusalem descends? It declares, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. Again, do you understand? This is the grand story arc of the Scriptures. Man dwells with God. Man sins and is separated from God. God becomes a man and pays the penalty of their, for their sin so that God can come and dwell with man once more. It's all about being in the presence of God and getting to witness His beauty and His glory. I think if you start to get down to why so many Christians do not have heavenly hope in the face of trials, it comes down to this. It comes down to the fact that they have a deficient view of heaven. Either they have a deficient view of heaven or they have a clear view of heaven and a deficient view of God. Point being, they don't desire God. They don't really hunger for Him. They love idols, and so heaven doesn't appear that exciting. They're, they're much happier with the things of this earth, and so they seek their satisfaction there. And then when the trials come that threaten the source of that satisfaction, they're quickly moved. Are you following me here? This means that if, if we want to endure trials then we've got to not only reframe our hope from an eternal perspective rather than a temporal one, it also means that we need to adjust the way we understand this hope so that it is a hope centered on God rather than on idols. A hope focused on the Creator rather than the creatures. And how do you do that? Again, I think there's a lot of ways to answer that question, but I think we're going to get there in part in just a moment when we celebrate the Lord's table together. What I mean is that the way you'll anticipate God is when you understand what the character and nature of God is like. And that character is revealed in no place more clearly than in the gospel. It's when we see the the love of God for us, the grace that He extends towards sinners, that we begin to get a glimpse of how wonderful it must be to be in His presence. It's when you want to be with Him, right? Again, grace, right? Increases love. Even as we anticipate the earthly reign that will occur at the return of Christ, it's when we understand that the sacrificial love of our sovereign, that we'll understand what kind of rule he'll rule with when he comes, right? And what kind of kingdom he'll institute in the day of his return. And we'll anticipate it with great joy. It's when we understand the gospel that those things give us hope. In other words, if we want to have hope, real hope, Hope that transcends the pain that we experience in trials and then pushes us to endure through them so that we can receive the blessing that comes through suffering. Then we'll begin by looking often at the cross to see the kind of king that we behold there. And so as we look to God to give us the hope that we need to endure trials, let's begin by praying that He would open our eyes to see Christ and to delight in the glories of His grace. Let's pray.